Support for Need to Know comes from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. Learn more at Carnegie.org. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. Welcome back to the Need to Know podcast. This is Aaron, your host, and going to have a double header with the Kennan Institute today because we're going to also discuss here uh, the situation in Kazakhstan and uh, certainly an area that doesn't get much sunshine when it comes to U.S. policymaking. Um, but we're happy to have two of our scholars from our Kennan Institute. We have Ed Lemon, who uh, is with us as a Kennan Institute scholar, as well as affiliated with the Bush School. And we have Lucian Kim, who is formerly a uh, NPR correspondent in Moscow and is currently with the Wilson Center. So welcome, both of you. So let's uh, let's get it started with understanding how we got to this place in the situation in Kazakhstan. We've had, uh, I guess, deadly riots uh, and and clashes that have happened over the last couple of weeks. But the last time we really talked about Kazakhstan was a couple of years ago when their longtime leader uh, decided to step down and, and bring some new rule into Kazakhstan, which they had not seen in decades. So, Ed, why don't we start with you? So I think you're right in pointing to um, the transition of power, in inverted commas, from the first president of the country, Mir Sultan Nazarbayev, who'd led the country since the Soviet Union, was viewed by many as the father of the nation. He'd adopted an economic policy of capitalizing on the country's vast resource wealth and had, you know, at one point led Kazakhstan to be the, the fastest growing economy in the world. But... In 2019, 2019, he, um, he resigns from his post in the president, but he doesn't leave Kazakhstan's politics. You know, he remains the lifelong head of the ruling party, and he remains the head of the powerful Security Council. And he chooses his hand-chosen successor, Kasim uh, Jamat Tokayev, to take over from him. He chooses Tokayev because Tokayev is a long-term diplomat. He doesn't have his extensive networks within the country. And the, the goal was to preserve the Nazarbayev legacy and the family's tremendous wealth. But in response to this, we've seen rising popular anger at the lack of reforms in the, in, in the country. And that's really where events in January began. It began in the west of the country, the oil-producing region of the country. And we saw protests initially against rising cost of um, liquid uh, petroleum gas used in cars. But rapidly that spread to major cities across the country, and it was really an outpouring of anger at the decades of misrule, lack of political reform within the country, endemic corruption. And really, you know, that story began with this handover of power. And since Nazarbayev came to power, and uh, Nazarbayev left, formally left the presidency in 2019, we've seen an uptick in protests across the country from 38 recorded by the Oxford Society in 2018, up to 508 in 2020. So really, you know, the, the events begin with an outpouring of anger at the lack of reform and change within the country. 
Lucy, I'll turn to you. I think you've seen this from reporting in the region. I mean, we're we're seeing from uh, the the previous leader, Nazarbayev, was essentially a Soviet era guy, uh, and so really, you're, I guess, seeing this adjustment from one of the last holdouts of the Soviet era. But there's got to be Russian influence there, right? Uh, what's what's the Russia angle on all of this? There's absolutely um, a very wide Russia angle on Kazakhstan. Um, I think what's important uh, to understand about Nazarbayev is that he was probably the only post-Soviet leader that Vladimir Putin actually respected. Uh, they talked a lot. They met um, shortly before the protests at uh, in St. Petersburg at, at an informal summit of the Commonwealth of Independent States. That was just in December, late December. And what I find really remarkable is, uh, despite these very close ties between Kazakhstan and Russia, how fast uh, Putin was ready to drop Nazarbayev. I think that's remarkable. There's a widespread opinion in, in Russia that what we saw was uh, a coup or maybe even a series of coups um, sparked by infighting uh, between the Nazarbayev clan and uh, his successor, Takayev. Um, and so that when things got really bloody, uh, what we were seeing was uh, not a, a popular uprising as much as um, warfare, <laughs> street warfare uh, bet between two clans. And I think um, what's remarkable is that uh, Putin, who seems unable to remember Takayev's full name <laughs> and revered, at least in the past, Nazarbayev, how fast he switched. And um, within the course of one day in January, the Kremlin said, um, when asked uh, whether Russia would interfere, they said the, the Kazakhs can deal with the situation themselves. Within a few hours, uh, Putin had agreed uh, to send in this force a very small force um, of the uh, CSTO, that's the uh, Collective Security Treaty Organization led by Russia. Um, within days, uh, they had boots on the ground uh, guarding vital installation, government installations, and basically propping up the new regime to Kiev. Um, I think this is uh, remarkable. So in a way, um, from a Russian perspective, um, and as I think it is important to look at the Russian perspective simply because of the legacy of the Soviet Union um, and Russia's influence over the region, this was a win uh, geopolitically for Putin. Um, the new leader, uh, Tokayev, who has uh, basically taken all the power, power from Nazarbayev uh, during this unrest, Tokayev is now uh, deeply indebted to Putin. Um, we're hearing that the force, this uh, so-called peacekeeping force of about 2,500 troops has already left uh, Kazakhstan. Um, but I think Russia has demonstrated that on a moment's notice, it will go in uh, when it sees fit uh, to prop up a regime in Central Asia. And so you give us a lot of information there. So one that it could possibly really have been a coup to solidify the new leadership 
uh, kind of move on from Nazarbayev is really what I'm getting from what you're telling us. Um, but also that Putin's able to sweep in, um, you know, when you're talking about, you know, sending in peacekeeping forces and everything else, I'm automatically thinking about Ukraine, um, and, you know, other areas where Russia has had, in, has interests and claims to have interests. Is there a possibility that you could see Russia trying to set up its own kind of either puppet regime there within Kazakhstan to maintain its influence if Kazakhstan under new leadership starts to pull away, as we've seen in Ukraine? Well, I don't think at this point Russia or the Kremlin needs a puppet regime. Um, the new the new regime uh, led by Takayev, uh, who has now consolidated all power, is deeply indebted to him. Um, investigative journalists have also shown that he has a lot of family links um, to Russia, possibly business links as well. So that link uh, still exists. And... Um, I think what we've learned from this lesson is that for Putin, um, individual autocrats are not as important as an autocratic system or one that Russia can influence, that that is much more important. And I think um, Putin understood the woods of, winds of change had blown through Kazakhstan, that Nazarbayev uh, was aging on his way out, and it was time to solidify um, the Kremlin's grip on uh, the new generation. Um, now, the Ukraine comparison is interesting. Let's remember that for uh, Russia, uh, Kazakhstan is its longest land border, and it's uh, one of the lang longest land borders in the world. Uh, this is obviously of concern, uh, well, both to Russia and to Kazakhstan. Um, Russia fears um, Islamist influence uh, coming across the border, and especially that long border with Kazakhstan. But the Kazakhs also have something to fear. The northern uh, part of Kazakhstan uh, was settled by Russians, and many Russians view um, that part of Kazakhstan as actually an integral part of Russia. So we don't see uh, the kind of scenario that we have in Ukraine yet. But I think it's important to point out that the seeds for future conflict are certainly there. Yeah, I always like to point out uh, whenever we have done classes on Russia that the longest land border that Russia has is with Kazakhstan, not China. Everybody, a lot of Western casual observers like to just think, oh, it's China because it's two huge countries in Asia. Uh, but it's actually Kazakhstan, which is some, what, 7,000 kilometers, right? Yeah, I think also, Aaron, something important to point out here is that Tokayev shows is is a, was handpicked by uh, Nazarbayev, and he represents still this kind of Soviet or at least Russian influenced uh, elite uh, that speaks uh, that speaks Russian and is oriented towards Russia now, indebted to Russia. There are other undercurrents, though, in Kazakh society. Uh, there's a new generation, um, well-educated generation, uh, that is, you know, demanding democratization. And uh, I don't think we should uh, underplay the fact that there is also uh, an Islamist underground in Kazakhstan, and Russia has concerns about that. Ed, I want to give you a chance to jump in here. Um, I get the sense from what Lucian's been telling us that 
we're sort of guessing a little bit at what's going on on the streets uh, and what the reasoning is. How much insight do we have? How much, what's our intelligence situation and really to know exactly what's going on on the ground and how much of it is kind of speculation on our part? Well, I think during the unrest itself, particularly when it escalated to become very violent in the largest city in the country, Almaty, um, on January 5th, when we saw numerous buildings being uh, set on fire, um, open gun battles between, um, you know, um, armed groups on the street and law enforcement. During that period, and when it really became a crisis, we saw Kazakhstan shut the internet down in the country, and particularly Almaty, where most of the violence took place, was offline um, until January 11th. Um, so during the time of the conflict itself, it was very difficult to really get a clear picture of what's going on. And we still don't really know um, what was behind those events. Was this a coup attempt, as the government claims, by um, foreign-backed um, individuals who were potentially part of Nazarbayev's uh, inner circle looking to seize power back? Or was it the Tokayev administration taking advantage of the protests and the unrest we were seeing in the country to you know, have a provocation and ultimately use that as an opportunity to seize more control? Um, we don't know who the armed groups on the streets were, who was behind them. The government's figure of 20,000 foreign-sponsored terrorists is obviously nonsense. We've only seen 44 people now being investigated on terrorism charges in the country, so that leaves the other 19 thousand and nine hundred and fifty um theoretically um still in the country um, but i repeat you know this figure is is completely incredulous and, and can't be believed so yeah it's very difficult to know precisely what's happened and of course you know there's a lot of speculation around different struggles within the elite um and because of the, the close nature of the regime we can't really tell precisely what's going on. I think what's obvious, I think, as, as we've already alluded to, is that the Nazarbayev era is coming to an end. We've seen various um, allies of the former president, family members of the former president, losing their positions, his sons-in-law losing their positions in the security services, and various other members of the family losing their um, positions within the business community. So certainly that points to this changing of the guard where Tokayev is attempting to purge elements that are loyal to Nazarbayev um, and bringing in his own allies in the new government that we saw appointed on January 11th. Included a lot of old faces, but notably those who were, were fired from their positions and didn't return to the government were many of the people who were closest to Nazarbayev himself. Yeah, um, if I could just uh, add on to what Ed said. Um, as far as this, the Tokayev calling the unrest and the violence and attack by foreign terrorists. Um, it's absolutely true that no one really gives us any credence, uh, but it was a necessary statement in order to activate uh, the, uh, the arrival of troops from the Collective Security Treaty Organization, um, which uh, for the first time in its history, it, it, it consists of uh, several post-Soviet states. So there were also uh, troops from uh, Belarus, Tajikistan, and Kyrgyzstan uh, joining uh, the, the main Russian force um, to uh, secure those uh, installations. And as far as we know, they were not involved in any kind of fighting, but much more to hold Takayev's back uh, while they were trying to get the security situation, especially in Almaty, uh, under control. 
the other thing uh, I would add um, to what Ed said uh, is that, you know, what was remarkable is that during all of this unrest, Nazarbayev disappeared. He is the, you know, omnipresent leader up to this point. Uh, he has uh, cultivated a, a real cult personality. And all of a sudden, he vanishes. And we see, you know, statues of him toppled and, and pictures of him uh, spattered with mud. And he's just gone. And there's a lot of speculation whether he fled the com- country or not. And uh, just this week now, he um, appears in a video address um, where he says he's in the capital. And almost most uh, amazingly, he says, I'm just a pensioner in, you know, Almaty, at least since the year 2019. And basically, uh, you know, washing his hands of any any of this bloody business that just transpired. Um, so I very much saw this speech as kind of an abdication. Um, he is saying, I'm I'm done. I don't know if Ed has a different opinion on that. Ed, your take on that? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the, the video address um, on January 18th was very um, telling insofar as I think, you know, I think it indicated that Nazarbayev is accepting that he um, will see his legacy somewhat dismantled. We'll see a move away from, you know, his position. We saw him today, in fact, um, being removed from his lifelong position, um, or at least them changing the law to confirm that he has been removed from uh, the Security Council before he was legally head of the Security Council for his natural life. He was then removed from that position in the early days of the protests. And now today, the parliament voted to confirm legally that, you know, now he's been removed from that position. So I think, you know, various signs, including yesterday's address, that Nazarbayev um, is departing the uh, political scene. Well, one of my usual questions on this show is to look out on the horizon. And I think we've we've done that a little bit with uh, Lucian with talking about uh, the seeds of possibly seeing what was what's going on in Ukraine happening at the border area with Kazakhstan. That's certainly something maybe to watch out for on the horizon, but also a reason why the West should care. I think I want to wrap this up, though. Since Kazakhstan doesn't rise too often on policymakers' radars, and it is here now, if we could just discuss for a minute as we wrap up why we should care about Kazakhstan. What are what are the the? It obviously is a complicated tapestry of. It's not as straightforward as and simplistic as many people may think. So why should a, a Western policymaker care in the U.S.? Lucian, you want to get us started on that? Well, there's a really kind of a crass reason. Uh, Kazakhstan uh, has vast oil and gas reserves. And uh, from the U.S. point of view, uh, Chevron and ExxonMobil are both uh, in Kazakhstan, um, helping helping the country exploit some of those resources. So that's kind of on a, uh, on a, very, on a very basic level. But I think Kazakhstan, uh, by area, is also the largest country in uh, Central Asia, and it occupies this very strategic um, location. Maybe it's an unfortunate location to be in on sort of the on Russia's uh, soft underbelly, uh, facing uh, the south, um, 
and by extension uh, facing uh, instable countries like Afghanistan. So sort of a big picture view on Central Asia is that what we have now is uh, these five republics, Kazakhstan included, uh, are uh, all ruled by strong, uh, quite strong leaders. Uh, Russia has varying degrees of influence, but with Kazakhstan now uh, quite a bit. Um, same would go for Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. And uh, the leaders that are holding on, um, at, at, at least in, 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 in Kazakhstan and Tajikistan, um, you know, have not really gone down this Islamic or Islamist path, uh, even though um, obviously the region's roots uh, are in Islam. So um, there are a lot of questions sort of from a geopolitical uh, point of view. What happens if Afghanistan really uh, goes down a black hole um, if very weak states like Tajikistan, which border, uh, which borders Afghanistan, um, if they become unstable and, um, if, if the whole region, uh, you know, could go down a very dark path. Ed, I'll give you the last word here. Kazakhstan has always been a, a stable partner of the United States. The United States was the first country to recognize its independence, um, just over, 30 years ago. Um, the US is the second largest investor in the country, as Lucian said, primarily in the oil and gas sector, but the investments amount to $38 billion. So certainly there are economic interests there. And Kazakhstan's been a reliable partner on um, you know, things like denuclearization, um, uh, trying to negotiate a settlement to the conflict in Syria, Afghanistan. And so I think the US does have leverage. I think you know, some of the speculation that the Kazakh policy of multi-vectorism, its foreign policy where it tries to have positive relationships with multiple different power centers, Russia, China, the European Union, the United States. I think that isn't dead. You know, I think as we've uh, talk, talked about, Russia's influence will now grow within the country, particularly since the CSTO intervention. But I think the US still has leverage and it can push for things like a, a transparent investigation into what's happened. And we've seen Tokhayev um, in his um, address to the nation earlier this week, talking about reform, talking about redistributing wealth within the country, talking about creating a system with lower levels of corruption. And I think these are all areas where the US um, can continue to try and push um, push the elite to really realize and then stay true to their word uh, that you know they're trying, trying to create a new Kazakhstan and use this as a, as a teaching moment to try and create a more responsive state. So I think the US certainly is engaged and should be engaged going forward. Well, this is one of the I think amazing things about the Wilson Center is something happens in the world. We've got people who can really dig down and help us understand it. So Ed Lemon, Lucy and Kim, thank you so much for joining me today, helping us understand this. And maybe we'll have you back on to do a part two on this, because it certainly sounds like there's a lot to unpack here in an area that we don't really get to talk about very much. I'd love to do it, Eric. All right. Thank you both. Yeah, thank, thank you. you.